I'm Anna Basovich, and this is The Schema. In this episode, we're taking a look at the transformation from fee-for-service to value-based payment models and examining the strategies that leading healthcare organizations are using to succeed as they take on increasing risk. Today, we're talking with Bradley Hunter, Research Director of Class. Bradley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Anna. Great to be here. I'm so glad. Uh, can you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience? Tell us about what you do. Sure. Uh, so I think I have one of the coolest jobs in healthcare. Uh, and what we do at Class Research is we like to provide transparency to the marketplace, where we go and talk directly with the end users of products and services in healthcare. And based off of their feedback, we provide that transparency to the marketplace about what's really happening. Because uh, then a provider or a payer can go to class and they can understand, hey, if I'm looking at Arcadia, for example, what's my experience going to be like? What are their current customers saying about their experience? Uh, and then I also get to take that information and uh, represent the provider's voice in the boardroom with a lot of these companies. So I think I have the coolest seat in healthcare where we get to do that. I tend to agree. <laughs> so you speak with healthcare organizations around the country on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what you see, and I'm really curious about the variations and the trends that you're noticing and the adoption of these tools. Yeah, so one of the really cool things that's happening in the country is, as you know, we have a pandemic on our hands, uh, and that's, that's no secret, and it's also no fun. Uh, so if the pandemic could be over tomorrow, that would be excellent. <laughs> so let's hope that that happens. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that really happened with it is that fee-for-service, which has been the dominant model for a long time in healthcare, was really exposed for what it was. Uh, and that is a monstrous beast. And the you know there were many health systems that I talked with where you know Q2 last year, they were saying, oh man, you know, we're going to be in the red and you know elective surgeries aren't happening and and then they would just say okay how many millions of dollars are we going to be in the red <laughs> and you're like that is a very uncomfortable conversation no matter who you are or what industry you're in and then what happened is that they looked across the fence you know they just kind of did the wilson move mm -hmm. like heidi ho neighbor and they looked at other health systems that were you know incapitated contracts and it was business as usual and they said wait a second how do we get involved in that? Mm -hmm. Because we've been dipping our toes in this value-based care thing where we, you know, we have you know, 10%, 20% of revenue tied to value-based contracts, but it's really not enough for us to really you know, get shifted into this. Uh, and so we've really seen that shift happen where there's a lot more interest in you know, going fully at risk through capitated contracts. Medicare Advantage is another popular uh, at-risk model that's going on. So, uh, and that varies across the country because some states are are more aggressive in entering into risk-based contracts, like New York with the Disrupt program. Uh, that's a very well-known example of that. And so, other states are more aggressive moving into that. Uh, but really, a, a strong shift across the country into taking on risk. So, really interesting to to see that happening. Uh, and then, as we see with the tool side of it there's a broad adoption of different types of tools. Because uh, as you know, we have the, the class framework where there's the six different pillars of population health. And within each of those, there's functionalities that you need to have. Uh, and some are adopting a couple of pillars. Some are doing a little bit of all six and, 
just where they are in those different pillars. Uh, that, that's been really interesting to watch. It's really exciting to see the acceleration and the way that COVID has sort of opened up, uh, I think, a faster path for this. What kind of barriers are you still seeing? Oh, there's lots of barriers. <laughs> uh, so there's actually a report on class. So any provider or pair that's listening to this can go to class. And we have a white paper that we put out in 2018, and it has the top 10 barriers to adopting value-based care. And one of those is just inexperience because we don't know what we don't know. Uh, another is that there's no guaranteed path to success here, <laughs> right? So that's a big one where you, mm -hmm. you look at this and you're like, hey, we wanna be successful in value-based care. How are we going to do this? Well, we don't know. Yep. <laughs> so that, that's a huge barrier and, and the reimbursement models. And one other thing that really changed with the pandemic, because uh, pre-pandemic, there was a lot of resistance for doing virtual care. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of that stemmed from the fact that the reimbursements weren't there for virtual care. The pandemic switched that. And so we see a lot more adoption of virtual care and just getting closer to the individual, to the consumer, because uh, that's what consumers really want and what they're looking for right now. So anyway, a lot of other barriers, but those, those are really the big ones. But the interesting thing is we see a lot of organizations cutting through that. So as you think about the groups that have been really at the forefront of jumping into these new models, leveraging some of the technology that's out there, what do they have in common? What are the best practices? Uh, lots of best practices. So uh, we actually have a, a new report coming out, uh, the Downside Risk Leaders Report. So we talk to leading organizations across the country uh, from several different vendor organizations where we said, hey, what are you doing to be successful? Because they've taken on you know, substantial amounts of downside risk. So a couple of things really stand out as really important to the process. Number one is good data. And mm -hmm. data, data is king because it's the foundation, the analysis on that data and moving that into actionable insights. Like that process, not an easy process. Like it's easy to say, like, oh, you get the data, you analyze it and you provide insights. It's great. Uh, <laughs> but moving beyond data to insights and then to action, that's a really hard process. But that helps to inform everything that goes on throughout this entire process because you make your care management decisions based off of the data that you have. So that strong data foundation, that is something that all of them have in common. Uh, now, another thing that, that all of them have in common is that they have taken change at an organization level and had to get buy-in from the entire team, mm -hmm. right? This is an isolated silo where IT, for example, could say, hey, we're <laughs> going to make this change. And then the rest of the organization says, well, you know what? That doesn't sound fun because this, this is- We've seen that. It's not that pretty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it kind of- well, it doesn't go very well. Mm -hmm. uh, so successful organizations really have that buy-in and it starts at the executive level where the CEO, the CFO, the CIO, the CMIO, mm -hmm. CMO, they're all on the same page and they say, this is where we're going. We are going on the path to value. We are going to make this work and this is the future of our organization. And once that team is bought in, then we find that there's a lot more success in value-based care mm -hmm. because there's that, you know, the shared vision that really drives value-based care forward. One thing we see with some organizations is we think about 
some slowness to adopt is a little bit of this chicken and the egg problem where an organization wants to take on risk, but they don't have some of that framework, some of those tools and technologies, and they don't want to invest in them until they're taking on risk. Mm -hmm. So they tend to get stuck there. What do you think allows groups to break through that? So some of it stems from just pure audacity. Uh, you know, th that happens yeah. where they're like, hey, we're going to do this because we think it's going to be the way of the future or they, so that happens. And then there's also, it, it's like the, the organization says, okay, this is what we really want to do. How can we go about doing it? Uh, and a lot of the time it, it stems from, can we find a payer who's willing to go at risk mm -hmm. with us? And CMS is always very willing to go at risk, uh, but often they're looking to say, can we do commercial contracts as well? Because an interesting thing that happens is you look at risk, and if you're only taking on a small percentage of risk, then uh, you're putting the rest of your fee-for-service revenue at risk. So like an example, if you put 5% of your revenue in value-based contracts and you just absolutely kill it, then you're going to kill your fee-for-service revenue. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> this happened with a provider that I spoke with where they said, yeah, we realized that there was you know, a, a church that they were doing a lot of the, the outreach in, in this community. And that's where the people really congregated around. And we knew that we needed to take care of our diabetic population. So then we went, went to the church and talked to them about it. And because of that, they had a big increase in diabetics that were managing their A1C at a healthy level. But what happens when you do that? Well, then they're not coming into the ED and they're not coming in for, for elective surgeries because they, they don't need that because they're taking care of themselves. So, so that like you can see the dichotomy there where you're like, oh yeah, we're taking care of people. We want to do that, but we're killing our revenue over here and we don't want to do that. And so you know, as, as people look to get into value-based care, finding that collaborative payer, that's really a key part is, okay, I need someone who's gonna help me get into this. And I will say another way that you can go is just to find a good vendor that you feel like you could have a good mm -hmm. partnership with. I see that much less frequently, and that's just the kind of the nature of things. I think that, I think that finding that, that pair is such a huge step for a lot of these organizations. What do you see in the market that makes payer-provider relationships more constructive than what we've seen in the past? Mm. So, conversations. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the best way to do yeah. it. So, let me describe a couple of scenarios. So, in the past, you would have providers that would say, yeah, we'll, we'll sign this value-based contract. Mm -hmm. Okay, why are you signing this value-based contract? You're like, well... It's kind of the cool thing to do. It's there. It, it's there. Mm -hmm. The payer said we should sign it. You're like, oh, okay. Uh, and then uh, we had vendors that were in the space, both you know, IT consultants as, as well as IT vendors uh, who were saying, hey, have you talked with your payer about the contracts? Like, Because you have these five value-based contracts and you have 70 measures that you need to report on. What if we joined you at the table and you could talk with your payer and maybe we could just narrow down all of your contracts mm -hmm. so that they only, you know, you only had to report on 12 across all of the contracts. Mm -hmm. 
do you think they'd be open to that conversation? And the provider's like, oh, well, I don't know. Like, we've never really done that with the mm -hmm. payers. And then the vendor's like, let's just try it. And so they would sit down with the payer and the payer's like, yeah, we'd love to do that. Like, mm -hmm. it, that fulfills our requirements, but we can totally report on these quality measures that you think are important. So we'll structure the value-based contract around that. And so that's been really eye-opening for a lot of folks uh, and something that I've seen consistently on those that are taking on uh, substantial amounts of downside risk is they regularly have those conversations with payers. It's, it's, it's such a big step forward, I think. It's so exciting that so many provider groups are now recognizing their strengths and bringing those to the table and saying, here's how we can manage your population most effectively. Mm -hmm. Let's build out a new type of contract around that. Yeah, well, and another key thing that really changes that conversation, so once you're having the conversation, is having the data. So that mm -hmm. foundational piece, because then the provider can come to the table and the payer will say, okay, here's what I think we should do. And the provider can say, well, based off of our data, here's what we think that we should do. And if we do these things, then then we are betting that we're gonna have a, a better outcome. Do you agree that this is, this is a good thing for us to pursue? Mm -hmm. And having that data to inform that conversation, like it doesn't come easily, it doesn't come overnight. Like, you know, if there's a magic lamp that can get me all the data that I need, please <laughs> let me know where it is. Uh, it might be in the Cave of Wonders. Mm -hmm. uh, so we'll be hunting for that for quite a while, I think. I agree. Uh, as we were talking about the range of payers, you called out CMS as, in a lot of ways, a gateway contract mm -hmm. for a lot of these organizations. And we were looking back through our notes and realized that CMS Innovation Center has actually tried something like 50 different payment models at this point. Yes. <laughs> so as we think about CMS charting this path over the course of the next 10 years, and especially this really newfound focus on health equity, what do you think we should expect there? I think we can expect a lot of a lot of continued innovation there, uh, right? Because there's there's so many unknowns when it comes to what's going to work and what's not, uh, and so there's going to be a lot of iterative innovations to help us get to where we need to be. Uh, the other thing that I think we can expect is that CMS is going to push this, uh, and so this is something that we're gonna to wanna to adopt and adopt early so that we can learn from it. I think there's, there's a lot of good things that are gonna come out of it. Uh, and you know, health equity is such a, a strong topic right now, which I'm so grateful for, because that, that's something that we really need in this country. Mm -hmm. And as we continue to move forward with that, like I, I just love the idea that everybody can get the care that they need when they need it. So Bradley, as we think about health equity and it's so unfortunate that it's taken a pandemic to bring this to light. How do you see plans and health systems working most constructively to make progress in this area? So I think one of the, you know, if I think about the future and what an ideal looks like, mm -hmm. one of the things that's going to change is who's in the room because we want to have the provider in the room and the payer in the room, then we want them to be at the table, but we also want the community to be represented. Uh, there was uh, a community that I talked with and they said, don't make any decisions for us without mm. us. And I thought that was just so beautifully said. So we, we want to have that representation from the community because then collaboratively, all three parties and maybe more can be in the room to say, hey, what do we really need to be focusing on here? 
what's going to make a difference so that everyone in our community can live healthier and happier lives? Because if they do that, we all win. I completely agree. It's one of the things that I've always appreciated about Oregon's CCO model is the requirement to include community leadership and representatives of the patients on the boards of these organizations, because it does give you that broader perspective. Mm -hmm. So thinking ahead a little bit, you know, what kinds of investments do we want to see healthcare leaders and especially CIOs making, but also what can they do to make those investments most effective? So there's a lot of investments that can be made. Uh, so that's part of the conundrum, if you will, of, okay, where do we go next? Because hopefully at this point, we already have a data foundation. Right? You, so you wanna have this uh, data platform, if you will, so that you can have a single source of truth for your organization. And you wanna have clinical data in there, financial data, you want to have claims data in there. You want to have operational data. Mm -hmm. Like there's a, a large number of data sources that you want to put into this. Right. And you don't want to have to do that across multiple platforms. So we, we're really starting to see that consolidation of, okay, how do we consolidate this onto a single platform? And then how do we get that data into all these other applications that we need to have? So a couple of big trends that are happening, right? So integration with either a platform or organization that helps to address social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. Hospital at home is another big trend mm -hmm. that we're seeing. Uh, telehealth, uh, we've seen an interesting shift where you know, during the pandemic when it started, it was, okay, whatever works, just do something. Right. And now we're consolidating down to more actual platforms uh, versus the providers using FaceTime. Mm -hmm. and. It, it happened. Uh, it worked, though. It, it, it worked, and the patients thought it was great, but, uh, you know, maybe not a HIPAA-secure platform. So, <laughs> and, and then the whole trend towards consumerism. So patient engagement gets a lot of, of airtime of, okay, how are we going to engage the patients? Uh, we actually have an entire ecosystem of different ways to engage patients, uh, which you can go and see on class. But all of those things really come together where... We're, we're shifting healthcare so that it's not just everything is around the, the physician. Now we're, we're trying to put the patient at the center of this. Mm -hmm. It might be a healthcare specific model where we have the physician and the patient together. Now that's, that's kind of a happy view to mm -hmm. say, hey, we can support both of these individuals. Right. It doesn't have to cosmically shift one way or the other. But that shift to how do we make this more convenient for the individual so that they can get the care that they need when they need it, regardless of their socioeconomic status or, or anything like that. How do we make that a reality across all of healthcare and across the country? It's huge progress, and I think it's gonna get us to very meaningful outcomes. Yeah, here's hoping, quadruple aim. Quadruple <laughs> aim or bust. Bradley, thank you so much for joining us today. My genuine pleasure. Thanks for having me, Anna. Take care. You do the same.